Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tebaldo, Executive Chair of the Cancer Support Community. For more than 35 years, we at the Cancer Support Community have been a relentless ally for anyone impacted by cancer. We help individuals manage the realities of this disruptive disease and get back to normal. Whether accessing our free services in person or at one of our 175 locations, online or over our toll-free helpline, you are getting a team of licensed professionals providing patient navigation, financial counseling, genetic counseling, pediatric support, and more. I'm not a historian, but I do not doubt that the events of 2020 uh, and their aftermath will be studied for decades to come. The murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, the national outcry that followed, the COVID-related attacks and hate crimes directed at Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, the disproportionate impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on people of color. These overlapping and intersecting events have shed a blazing light on the inequities in our society, including those in our healthcare system, and caused to look at health equity in a new way. All of us at the cancer support community believe all people must have equitable access to care regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, age, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, zip code. As part of our observance of National Minority Health Month, today's show will focus on disparities in our healthcare system in general and cancer care in particular. I'm truly honored to have two major thought leaders joining us today for this conversation, Dr. Carol Brown, Dr. Christopher King. Before we get started, I want to tell you a little bit about our esteemed guests. Dr. Carol Brown is a board-certified gynecologic oncologist who is the Senior Vice President and Chief Health Equity Officer at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Dr. Brown also serves as Vice Chair of Health Equity in the Department of Surgery. She holds academic appointments uh, as attending surgeon and member at MSK and Professor Obstetrics and Gynecology at Weill Cornell Medical College. Dr. Brown's career is focused on three areas, providing high-quality and compassionate surgical care to women with gynecologic cancers, wiping out health care disparities, and promoting public policy to increase awareness, improve access, improve care, and increase research funding for gynecologic and other cancers. Welcome to the show, Dr. Brown. Thank you so much, Kim. Happy to be here. And do- Excellent. We have a lot to cover. Dr. Christopher King, our second guest, is a board-certified healthcare executive, educator, and researcher. As chair of the Department of Health Systems Administration at Georgetown University, Dr. King provides visionary leadership in teaching, research, and practice in health system redesign. His scholarship is at the intersection of health equity, structural racism, and population health. Before joining Georgetown University, he served as the first assistant vice president of community health for MedStar Health. In this role, he created a community health needs assessment framework and spearheaded regional efforts to strengthen the system's capacity to advance population health goals. His accomplishments include applying rigor and evidence in community-based planning, program implementation, and evaluation with a focus on historically marginalized communities. Thank you for being with us, Dr. King. Thank you, Kim. Pleasure to be here. Well, I want us to have a a deep and robust conversation today, um, but I want to start with the fundamentals. Um, Dr. Brown, 
we, we're, we're hearing this term a lot, health equity, but can you distill that down for us and explain to our listeners, listeners what does that mean when we say health equity? Sure, Kim. Happy, happy to do so. So we hear a lot about the term equity now um, as opposed to some other terms that have been used in the past. And for me and I think for all of us in the field, equity means something very different than equality. So equality, and these two really should not be confused, equality means that everybody has an equal uh, chance uh, to get the same thing, but equity means making sure that everyone gets the same outcome, or in this case, an excellent outcome from their cancer, no matter what barriers or baggage or, um, you know, inherent things going on with them that might affect their ability to get that great outcome. And a good way to think about it is if you think about um, apples on, uh, on the lowest branch of a tree that are all at the same height, and you have three people, each person is of a different height. So if everybody stands on the same size box, the people that are shorter do not have the same chance to get that apple of great health care, right? But that, and that's equality, right? Because everyone has the same size box, but you're not taking into account the fact that everybody is of a different height. Equity means that we give everyone what they need as healthcare providers, as healthcare systems. We do everything possible to make sure that no matter how short somebody is, they have the same ability to pick that apple of great healthcare and great cancer outcome. So that's what health equity and cancer health equity mean for me. So that's a great way to describe it and help us think about it, Dr. Brown. Um, so your, obviously, area of expertise is in cancer care. So take a moment to tell us how some of these disparities and lack of health equity show up in cancer care. So it's um, really become very obvious now, um, as you mentioned, the events of the last year have really brought to light some of the long-standing inequities and disparities in healthcare in general in this country. But for cancer, as for many chronic conditions like diabetes, hypertension, other healthcare um, illnesses, there is a long-standing history of inequity or disparities. And in cancer, these differences or disparities can come up through a variety of measures. So there can be disparities in terms of how often or how likely someone is to get cancer. That would be a disparity in the incidence of cancer. There can be disparities based on how likely someone is to survive their cancer. So that would be a difference or a disparity in their, for example, their five-year survival. There also can be disparities, unfortunately, in the access to treatment and the type of treatment that different individuals with cancer get based on whatever their different lens of diversity is. Excellent, excellent. Dr. Brown, it's great to lay the foundation uh, for the conversation. Dr. Christopher King, let me bring you in here. Another term that our listeners may have seen in media coverage is the term racial equity. Can you explain that term to our listeners? 
Absolutely. And I love the direction that this conversation is going. I see Dr. Brown and I will complement each other uh, very nicely here. So, sure, racial equity recognizes that racial and ethnic populations have simply not been given a fair shot in this country. And so we think about Jim Crow laws, redlining, voter suppression, discrimination, implicit bias, and explicit forms of racism. All of these issues indirectly or directly impact individual health and the health of populations. So the question is, how do we fix this? And that's what racial equity is all about. The solution requires us to distribute resources according to need, just as we just heard, which I must note is not obviously the same as equality, right? And one of the best examples is the COVID-19 vaccine, right? We must prioritize and get the vaccine to those with the greatest need. And one of those populations, obviously, is communities of color. Why is that? And why is it important? Well, it's important because people of color are more likely to be impacted by the virus because of a history of injustice that puts them at a higher risk for being infected and not faring well if they are infected because of a pre-existing condition. So we talk about achieving racial equity and health, and that means that we, at some point, create a world in which we cannot predict a person's health status solely by their race. Really interesting um, context for the conversation. Um, Dr. King, you've worked across many different areas of, of, uh, of health care. Um, let me ask you, obviously you're an esteemed, at an esteemed institution that provides cancer care, so let me um, ask the same question I did of Dr. Brown. How do we see some of the disparities that you're describing play out in the context of cancer care specifically? Yeah, uh, and, and so I'm a resident of, of the nation's capital. Hopefully at some point we'll be the 51st state. <laughs> and every four years I work with students to conduct research that examines health and socioeconomic disparities in black residents of the city. Um, and you can take the cancer, right? There's a disparity. Just choose one, right? Black residents are more likely to develop cancer at a rate that's two times higher than white. That's for all cancers. But if we look at specific types, we know that prostate cancer, the rate is four times higher. Colon cancer, three times higher. Lung cancer, two and a half, two times higher. And breast cancer, one and a half times higher. Now, these trends are not unique to the District of Columbia, and they are reflected in other cities all across the nation. And, you know, I have to say this again, these disparities do not exist because of race, because we know that race is a social construct. They exist because of what what was mentioned earlier, right? People of color just have not been given uh, equal opportunity. They they don't all have it all had. We haven't all had the same access to the apples and the apple tree. And what happens is it impacts day-to-day lived experiences that will shape health and health outcomes. And so it's not – that's the reason that we're seeing these differences in, 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 in cancer rates when you look at different populations. Got it. Got it. Um, Dr. Brown, we've only got a couple minutes till our first break here, but um, Dr. King touched on COVID-19. We know the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on communities of color, but how has that complicated or worsened disparities in cancer care? Well, unfortunately, uh, there have been several publications, and we've, we've all seen this. Um, I'm, I practice in New York City, and 
Um, all of you may know that about a year ago, New York City was the epicenter of COVID in the United States. And really, when we look back on it, had one of the most unfortunately worst experiences of any city in the world. And what we saw uh, at my institution and institutions across the city, and that has now been shown by publications, is that unfortunately, um, people of color who both had cancer and COVID were more likely to die from COVID, were more likely to um, not even make it to the hospital. And now we're talking about in the, in the height of the pandemic about a year ago. And I think a lot of it relates to what Dr. King was just saying, um, but it, it was really, really a stark contrast. And it's still being seen now because, again, mm-hmm. people of color, because of their living circumstances, because of the, their exposures to toxins, because of their food habits and the type of food they're able to get in their communities, absolutely have a much higher rate of the type of illnesses like diabetes, hypertension, obesity that we know make COVID worse. The other thing that I think is really important is that, it, particularly in New York City, is that people of color, and this is, I agree with saying that race is a social construct, but race is very often a surrogate for socioeconomic status. And the bottom line is that in New York City, the most people of color did not have jobs where they could work from home. They had mm-hmm. to keep getting out there in the public, being exposed before we knew that we should be wearing masks. And I think that's the other area. So, unfortunately, Great. we've seen that disproportionate effect on communities of color with cancer and COVID-19. Okay, I want to pick up on this. We're going to jump to a quick break. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. We'll be right back. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaides, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. 
links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you break away from cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo, and today is part of our observance of National Minority Health Month. We're taking a really close look at health equity, disparities in cancer care with two extremely knowledgeable guests, Dr. Carol Brown, who is the Senior Vice President and Chief Health Equity Officer at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, and Dr. Christopher King, Chair of the Department of Health Systems Administration at Georgetown University. Um, You know, a lot of the research we do at the cancer support community has to do with studying the patient experience. We hear a lot about the barriers, the obstacles that can make accessing care difficult. Um, And I think many people think that means obtaining affordable health insurance. That's important, you know, but it goes much further than that. It has some deeper, um, some deeper roots that I want to discuss. Um, Dr. Christopher King, we often hear the term um, social determinants of health. That's being thrown around a lot today, especially. I'm not sure folks necessarily understand what that means. What are some social determinants of health, and how do they impact access and quality in, in health care? Absolutely. So we know that health is mostly shaped by social and environmental conditions in which we live. And of course, health behaviors are correlated with socioeconomic conditions. So when we talk about social determinants of health, we're talking about housing, we're talking about food, we're talking about reliable transportation. All of these are extremely important for obtaining the right services in at, at the right time and by the right provider. You know, we looked at over 13,000 cancer survivors a few years ago and found this, the, the, num- the leading cause of missed appointments was transportation, right? So it is a barrier and needs to be um, integrated in how we think about delivery, the delivery of care. So we're seeing lots of interesting things in, the, in, in, in healthcare right now. We're seeing Lyft, for example, um, partner with healthcare providers so that patients have door-to-door access to services when they need it. So bottom line is we just really need to think much more broad and recognize that where we live, work, eat, and play shapes our health status, and we can provide the best medical care in the world. But if people are living in conditions that aren't conducive to healthy living, we're not going to see significant improvements in health outcomes. So, Dr. King, I've also heard you talk about the five dimensions of access can you tell us uh, what are those dimensions, um, you know, what are those barriers that can prevent somebody from accessing health care, and what can be the consequences caused by those barriers? Absolutely. It's so much more than just an insurance card and having access to insurance. Um, we need to think, again, much more broad, and there are five dimensions, and this work came out of Penchansky and Thomas. These were health services research- researchers uh, in the ni- early 1980s. So they all begin with, with A, Availability, accommodation, affordability, 
accessibility and acceptability. And I'll do this very, very quickly. So availability, do we have enough providers to serve the community, right? And with cancer care, these issues arise when it comes to access to specialists. Accommodation, can providers accommodate patients when it's convenient for them? In some cases, we need evening hours and weekend hours to meet the needs of patients. Affordability, can we afford to pay for the service, right? This includes co-payments or insurance premiums for those who have coverage through one of the products of the mar- in the marketplace. So for some folks, it's still, even though they have insurance, they still can't afford those premiums and those co-payments. Accessibility is the proximal relationship between supply and demand. In other words, how far does the patient have to tra- travel to obtain care? And acceptability, which is the space that I play in the most. It focuses on patients' attitudes about their provider. Does the provider recognize and appreciate my lived experience? And are the interactions uh, uh, according? Um, are the interactions uh, consistent with that? Examples uh, of populations most susceptible to this, these barriers: people of color, LGBTQ, uh, patients with different faiths and belief systems, because we know that when providers are not sensitive to these nuances, they are not able to connect with patients in meaningful ways. And when you peel back the layers, that becomes an access issue. Wow, Dr. King, I think a lot of people would have a lot to say about the, about those five A's. Uh, 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 that's for sure. Um, Dr. Carol Brown, let's, let's put this conversation, you know, specifically into the context of cancer care, social determinants of health, the five dimensions that uh, Christopher King's telling us about. Um, put that in the context of cancer care. You're working in such an interesting market, five boroughs in New York. What are some of those barriers that patients are facing um, in, in their quest to get good cancer care? So I think uh, the barriers, interestingly enough, the barriers that cancer patients are facing in the New York Tri-State area, the five boroughs, um, really are similar to the barriers that patients may be facing even in rural areas. And I think the number one uh, barrier is this access, accessibility, and also the affordability. But to me, it really all comes down to access because uh, if something's, if you don't have the right type of insurance, if you don't have coverage at all, if you don't have a healthcare provider, that is really affecting your ability to get cancer care by giving you access to care. So for me, I think in the work that we've done here in the city, New York City, it is all about access. And there are many dimensions to those barriers. Um, You would think that because this is a big city and everything geographically is close together, that geography would not be a barrier, but it absolutely is. And the reason is that um, most patients who have cancer, just like around the United States, are getting their care, their health care, with their lo- in their local community. And we know that at the current time, the best cancer care and the most and the best cancer care is multidisciplinary, um, is provided by the great, the big health systems. And so the problem that I think we face in the New York Tri-State area and the New York City area is getting the incredible systems of cancer care that the major health providers have, which features, you know, early diagnosis, screening, access to clinical trials, getting that delivered to the average cancer patient who's getting all of their health care in their local neighborhood. And how do we bridge that gap? That's a big problem. And I think of the things that were discussed, 
this issue of acceptability and access and affordability are all tied together because, unfortunately, where for people who, um, depending on their health plan and for people who have, uh, in New York State, Medicaid or Medicaid-managed care, there's a problem in that many of these plans uh, that are managed care plans, Medicare-managed care, for the audience, that also means like an HMO-type thing. It's restrictive, mm-hmm. right? Unfortunately, many of these plans because for cost reasons, um, restrict a cancer patient from going to a Sloan Kettering, from going to a Mount Sinai Cancer Center, uh, because the health plan is really thinking about saving money. It's really the basis of all health insurance, right? You insure people, you're betting that they're going to stay healthy and you're not going to actually, you're going to take their premium and you're not going to actually have to spend money. So this is a huge problem that, um, you know, it, it requires advocacy on a regional level, a state level, and even a federal level, I think, to make sure that cancer patients have the right coverage, that they absolutely, by having that diagnosis of cancer, they are guaranteed that they are going to have access to great cancer care. So I think that's one of the areas that I think, um, in terms of this accessibility, is really a big barrier for cancer patients in our area. So I want to just quickly move to another topic that I really think relates to this conversation, and that is around clinical trials. Um, We know that clinical trials are crucial in the development and approval of new treatments. We know that there is historically low participation among people of color in clinical trials, yet it is really vital to study and test medications in diverse populations. So, Dr. King, um, give us a quick history here, Um, history, root causes of mistrust in medical research and and, and clinical trials? Absolutely. So the answer to this question requires us to reflect on our history and that black and brown bodies have played to advance the practice of medicine. While people of color were perceived as biologically different and intellectually inferior, their bodies were still used for medical research. These practices were uh, unconsensual, painful, immoral, and unjust. And this was their orientation to what we now call healthcare and research, right? This history has not been forgotten. I remember as a child, my grandparents cautioning me to be careful because doctors are part of, the, of a system that does not have our best interests at heart. And you know, Kim, uh, even today, we know that racialized biological fallacies persist. Just a few years ago, 2016, researchers from Princeton found that some residents and med students believe that there are biological differences between blacks and whites, thicker skin, higher pain tolerance. These belief systems translate into clinical decision-making that can be harmful to the patient, and there's plenty of evidence that corroborates how this shows up today. So in summary, we continue to have this, uh, this, this trust issue, and this is an issue that should concern everyone because if people of color are not represented in clinical trials, medical advances, which will be for the greater good of all, are hindered. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult history to talk about and a, and a, and a challenging situation for today. Um, Dr. Carol Brown, I'm a little pressed for time. I have a quick minute, but please weigh in on this subject, and we can pick it up on the other side of the break. So I think it's it's understandable, and I think this is really important related to COVID vaccine, and this is a really important issue for cancer, but I think it's a really important issue for COVID vaccination right now, and so I want to focus on that. You know, there is, there is very good reason 
for any, honestly, for anyone to mistrust the medical system when you look back on, on some of the history, but particularly for communities of color. But I think that what we have to do is talk about the great advances that have been made, um, particularly in cancer, that clinical trials are essential and that it is really important that people participate. And we can talk a little more after the break about how people of color can feel comfortable participating in cancer clinical trials and what kind of information they need to know so that they can feel that they're doing it confidently and safely. And we can comment on some of the same things related to the COVID vaccine. Good, good. I want to pick that up um, uh, after the break. Gosh, so <laughs> so much information that we're um, that we're covering a lot of ground. I think we might need to make this a, a series on health equity. Uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking about health equity um, in healthcare, health equity in cancer care, with uh, two really outstanding uh, guests. We have a lot more territory that we want to cover in this conversation. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. This is frankly speaking about cancer. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia, Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MagnoliaB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're continuing our important conversation about health equity with Dr. Carol Brown of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and Dr. Christopher King of Georgetown University. I'm so grateful to have both of you join us for this important conversation. There's so much ground that I still want to cover uh, with you, so 
I want to jump. I want to jump right back in, um, Dr. Carol Brown. Before the break, we were starting to talk about clinical trials. I want to take the first couple minutes of this segment to, to just wrap that up um, a little bit. I want to ask you to weigh in again on the importance of clinical trials when it, when it comes to, to to COVID and what we've learned there, and and also how that translates um, into cancer care and what folks should be thinking about, what questions they should be asking, what do they need to know when they're considering a trial. Thanks so much, Kim. I think the most important message for anyone who's facing cancer, but particularly for people in communities of color, is that, you know, when you hear those terrible words that you have cancer, everybody thinks the same thing, no matter what color their skin, no matter what part of the country they live in, no matter how old they are, they think, I want to live, right? And they think, I'll do anything so that I can live. So I think what we have learned here in the cancer research community is that there's so much that makes us the same uh, in this situation and very little that makes us different. And the bottom line is that in this day and age, cancer clinical trials are the best, I think, and most reliable way for you as someone facing cancer to make sure that you are going to get outstanding care and, very importantly, access to what is known to be the latest and most effective treatment, whether that's a surgical treatment, radiation, chemotherapy, immunotherapy. And that's because nowadays, particularly in the last decade, when you do, when we do cancer clinical trials, we're not experimenting. We're not checking on something that has, we have no idea whether it works. The vast majority of cancer clinical trials are comparing something that we already know works amazingly well and adding something new to it to see if it works better or comparing two things that we know that work really great to see which works better. So this whole issue, people worrying about placebos, that they're not going to get a good treatment, a cancer clinical trial is a great way to make sure you're going to get the best care. The other thing, that the reason it's really important that communities of color and people of color participate is because of those cancer disparities that Dr. King mentioned earlier. So it is really, really critical for black men with prostate cancer to participate in clinical trials that are looking at new therapies for metastatic and advanced prostate cancer. Why? Because we need to find whether or not these medications or treatments that have been shown to be really effective are going to actually get rid of that twice as high death rate for black men in the United States. And the only way to know that is if black men participate in the trials of these drugs. So that's a reason that it's really, really important um, and a reason that I think we've been able to educate people, let them know, answer their questions, treat them with dignity, treat them with respect. But again, the bottom line is if you have cancer, you want to live and you want access to the best treatment, no matter who you are. And clinical trials can be a great way to do that, as long as they're done in the correct way and as long as the person who's entering the trial is treated with dignity, respect, given the information, knowledge is power. And once we explain to people what is at stake. We have ways of explaining things so people can understand. Many, many patients want to enroll in cancer clinical trials. 
Great. That's great. Great background. Great context. I'll also just mention to our listeners that we have a, a, a wonderful educational um, series called Frankly Speaking about cancer clinical trials that gives a lot of good information and helps to, to, to do some myth-busting around um, trials, which I think is really uh, important. But this is a good segue to another topic that we've been, been hearing about and reading about. Um, I, I have a friend whose daughter is starting college this fall, and she shared with me that in trying to determine an institution's commitment to diversity and inclusivity, she not only looked at each college's diversity numbers in terms of the student body, but the faculty and administration as well. So with that approach in mind, when we look at the oncology workforce, especially oncologists, we see statistics that show that it is not very diverse. According to a report by ASCO, American Society of Clinical Oncology, 2.3% of practicing oncologists self-identified as black or African 5.8% um, self-identified as Hispanic. Dr. Brown, how does this lack of diversity... So I think it's really important, um, particularly when you're getting health care, particularly when you're um, participating in a research study, um, people identify and they feel most comfortable with someone who looks like them. Uh, As Dr. King mentioned earlier, it's that accessibility dimension. Is this physician, this nurse practitioner, this scientist sitting across from me, are they going to be able to understand who I am as a person? Are they going to understand how where I grew up or what language I speak or what religion I have is going to affect my health care? That's really what it's all about. And so it's very, very important that we make sure not just in uh, for oncology, but for all science, and I'll use this as a pitch, we need to make sure that scientists are from diverse backgrounds. Um, a good example is that when people talk to us about their hesitancy to get COVID vaccine in communities of color, we tell them about Dr. Kizzy Corbett who is a young African-American scientist who helped develop the COVID vaccine. And I can tell you that that uh, really takes away instantaneously a lot of people's reluctance. That's what we need, and we need to encourage that. Um, Because it's diversity of thought and experience that leads to these great uh, advances. Um, Companies know that. Businesses know that. So we need to make sure that science knows that and healthcare knows that. Yeah, really great. Uh, some great points there, Dr. Brown. Dr. King, I want to pivot to the personal for a minute, if you'll allow me. Um, in addition to your work at Georgetown University, you have shared uh, with me that um, you have another important job, and that is caregiver to your mother, who was diagnosed with laryngeal cancer a year and a half ago, and she moved from Kentucky to D.C. so that you could oversee her care. And you said, someone who's worked for years in healthcare, that that experience has been been eye-opening. Um, and, and, and so I would love for you to take a moment to share what did you discover as a caregiver that you had not known as a healthcare executive, educator, and, and, and published researcher? Yeah, thank you for asking that question, Kim. You know, in my training, it was made very clear to me that healthcare is complex. In fact, it's one of the most complex and heavily regulated industries, so I get it. But you really don't appreciate this until you are in the thick of it as either a patient or a caregiver. And so just like you said, for the past year and a half, I have been blessed and privileged to be the caregiver of my mother on her journey. I have seen the absolute best of humanity reflected in the physicians and nurses and support staff that have cared for her. But on the other hand, I've witnessed the broken and archaic systems in which they operate. It's 
2021, and we are still faxing documents across provider networks. I can't tell you how many near misses were avoided because I was on top of ensuring that the fax was received on the other end. Now, this is just one example of what caregivers do, just making sure things get done. Things you shouldn't have to worry about, like, you know, making sure a fax is received between two providers. It can be very overwhelming and emotionally taxing. But, again, I'm very thankful that I had the wherewithal and the capacity to do it. So, yes, it has been an eye-opening experience. And, again, I, I, I reflect on, you know, the issues that we experienced, and it wasn't an issue of, someone not being trained or a bad actor. It was always an issue of a system that is not designed to, you know, make sure that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. So thank you for asking that question. So really interesting to hear you share that with all of your, you know, your depth of knowledge. It is a challenging, challenging system, a broken system, um, really. Dr. Brown, I want to stick with the personal, uh, if I may, and I would love for you to take a moment to share with our listeners what inspired you to become an oncologist. Well, what inspired me to become an oncologist was really um, my my father, who was a surgeon, um, African-American surgeon, um, and his work uh, in, in, you know, accessing and, and, and advocating for health care for the underserved in, in South Central Los Angeles at a time when, you know, not too long ago, um, in the early 60s when I was born, there was still, uh, believe it or not, segregation in health care in Los Angeles, California. Uh, so um, working with him growing up inspired me. And then when I got to medical school, um, I realized that I loved surgery. My father was a surgeon, but I also loved internal medicine, and I loved caring for women, and I loved internal medicine because I loved taking care of patients, um, having a relationship with them that's ongoing, and I didn't like the fact that you might operate on someone and never see them again. So I basically found the specialty of GYN oncology, which is cancer surgery, but unlike a lot of other cancer surgeons, we maintain an ongoing, uh, hopefully lifelong relationship with our patients. We see them in follow-up. We can give them chemotherapy. And so that's how I really came uh, to my uh, love of oncology and wanting to do this as a career. And, and now your, um, your new role, congratulations, as the head of uh, health equity at, uh, at MSK. We have about a minute till the break, but just tell our listeners about what you're doing there. So I've been very fortunate. I've actually been working in this area at MSK um, for many, many years, um, but recently uh, was able to have a much broader impact um, and very happy that Memorial Sloan Kettering, along with many institutions, has chosen to put health equity front and center as part of our institutional goal and mission. So uh, we are working in the realms of both access, which is what we've been talking about here, and addressing some of those barriers, particularly accessibility and acceptability uh, for our patients of color, as well as in the research area, and just very excited to have the support um, and ability to make impact in, in working on clinical trials that address specifically these disparities in outcome, as well as trying to understand some of the potential molecular biologic uh, reasons that could explain some cancer disparities. 
Wow. Well, good for you. Congratulations. Um, Well-deserved and uh, good for them, for uh, good for MSK for recognizing uh, both your talent and the, uh, the importance of this, uh, the importance of this work. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We've got more to discuss on the show today with our two wonderful guests. Don't go away. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaides, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. With us today are Dr. Carol Brown, Dr. Christopher King. I'm so grateful to both of you for finding time in your schedules to come on the show, share your insights, share your experience. As I mentioned, um, at the top of the show, we, we're, we're here today because April is, uh, is often referred to as National Minority Health Month. There is a division in the National Institutes of Health that's called the National Minority Health <laughs> Division. Yet there's been a lot of conversation recently about the use of that term minority, the term minority health, and um, there's a lot that comes with that term. So Christopher King, I'm going to start with you. Please react to that idea, Minority Health Month, Minority Health at the NIH. Um, what, what's the conversation? What are you hearing and what do we need to do about it? 
Thank you for asking that question, Kim. You know, in our journey towards racial equity, one of the things we have to do is conduct critical audits of how we do things and how we say things. And this is a perfect example, right? So when we say minority, we are minimizing existence, right? We're making a group secondary. And that is not the message that we want to convey. So I personally am fully supported. And we are also in our work um, removing that language from, from how we, uh, you know, operationalize um, when, when it comes to recruiting uh, people of color um, and also helping accrediting bodies, you know, with their um, the protocols when it comes to capturing data and the language that they're using. So it's a really big deal, and it's a perfect example of what not to do as we move forward towards a vision towards racial equity. Dr. Carol Brown, your, your, your thoughts on this? What are you hearing? What's the conversation? I think that this is, I absolutely agree with Dr. King. I think this is one of those terms, minority, that uh, when it was first uh, begun to be used, it was uh, in, unintentionally used, um, but it basically reflected the fact that people of color, particularly black people, are seen as lesser than. I mean, that's the whole history of the origin of racism in the United States and in the world. Somebody is lesser than. So the choice of word is very unfortunate, but now that we, now that it is even not, uh, quantifiably accurate in many, many communities, uh, because it's usually been justified as minority means it's a, the, the smaller, the, the lesser group in number. Well, that's not true. I mean, in, in many, many parts of our country, and again, this subconscious use of minority, when you hear that lesser than, you know, we, we just have had too long as people of color, anyone who is different you're always being told you're lesser than, and it's time for that to stop. And I, I do believe this is going to be a non-issue. I, I absolutely believe that the federal government, um, state governments and so on, are going to get rid of this word uh, from their lexicon because uh, it's exactly the reasons that Dr. King said. I don't know. I'm feeling a little petition coming on. <laughs> you know, I'm a bit of an activist, you guys. I'm feeling a little petition uh, with the NIH maybe or some kind of uh, kind of broad public action that, um, that, that asks, you know, for the, suspend, the suspending use of that term and renaming the department. But, um, but we, can, we can have that conversation on another day. Um, you, you both bring such a wealth of experience to this conversation. I think you both also know that I, I'm a person who likes ideas. I like solutions. I like to have the academic discussion, but I like to roll up my sleeves and get things done. So I'm going to ask both of you, I'll start with you, Dr. King, one or two solutions, what's on your mind, one or two solutions, whether they're policy solutions, educational solutions, community-based solutions, that you think would help close the gap around health equity, access, and affordability. Dr. King, thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I'd like to see a system of care that is modernized, you know, one that has electronic health records that are interoperable and connected with community-based organizations. Um, I'd like to see social factors more formally integrated in care models. And how about new, and, um, new payment models that recognize the community-based organization as a key player or key actor in the delivery of health care? So I think, broadly speaking, I just hope that we have legislation and develop new norms and practices that really allow us to operationalize healthcare to its fullest extent, right? Recognizing that we are 
shaped by the conditions in which we live, learn, eat, and play. So that would be my response to that question in a, in a nutshell. Excellent, excellent. Dr. Brown, your thoughts on this? So my thoughts are that probably, in my mind, the most effective uh, single policy thing, and I will focus on policy because I love policy. Um, I, and I've spent a lot of time in advocacy work and going on the Hill and and in lobbying and, and advocating, I really think the time has come Although this country is not ready for Medicare for all, I think we are ready for cancer care for all. And I think this is a time to look at uh, federal legislation, state legislation that is going to give everyone with a cancer diagnosis guaranteed coverage, however that is, is done, whether it's you know, through the medical home, whether it's through community, you know, individual reimbursement, whatever it is, I think that no cancer patient should have to worry that they have to have a copay, that they won't be able to get access to a certain center. I think the time has come for that, and I think that that is something that people would get behind from a bipartisan standpoint um, at the federal level, and I think it's even possible at the state level as well. The other thing I think that would be really important is um, this issue of getting out to the community where everyone gets their cancer care. And, again, I'm limiting my response really to cancer because that's my area. Mm -hmm. I think we need to find ways, and Dr. King outlined some of them, very important, to be able to disseminate the great advances and the great systems that we have at Sloan Kettering's to the community, to people where they're getting their, their primary care, where they're getting care for their diabetes, for their hypertension. This is really critical. And there's a lot of good examples of how to do that. So I think, um, you know, putting impetus uh, behind uh, organizations and groups like Cancer Support Community and others that are doing this is really, really important. Um, I, I'm, I'm really running to the end of my time here, but I'm going to ask you both just very quickly. Are we at a tipping point? Do you feel hopeful that there is change on the horizon, Dr. King? You know, I, I certainly hope so. Uh, the last administration removed the scab and exposed the open wound of racism in this country. The death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, and so many others, and now we have Dante Wright and the recent assault of Second Lieutenant Karen Nazario. Uh, this just can't go on. Uh, and without major reform, the direction that we're driving in is, is unsustainable. So I remain up optimistic that the Biden administration and work at the local level will, will, will be done to move the needle in the right direction. But it requires us all to be intentional. And as my students say, woke around, you know, recognizing yes. how systemic racism shows up in, 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 in our day-to-day -day, uh, work and interaction. So Dr. Brown, hopeful? I'm definitely very hopeful. Uh, I think that the events of the last year, um, including the horrible issues of racial violence, um, including most recently the violence against Asian Americans, um, but particularly the COVID-19 pandemic has ripped the scab off and shown what are the effects of structural racism and health in this country, and I really think that everyone sees it and everyone wants to do something about it. So yep. I am very hopeful that things will change. 
Excellent. I, I, I share your hope and optimism. I agree. Let's, let's, let's make sure we're all rowing in the right direction. I want to thank you both for being here today to have this important conversation at such an important time in our nation's history. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Hey, give us a shout at the Cancer Support Community. You can find out about all of our free support services at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Call us at 888-793-9355. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Until next time, be well. Do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org.